Hey folks, before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to today's sponsor, and that is you, you the listener. This type of interview is not possible without your help. If you enjoy today's episode and you enjoy the type of content that we, the Brian Nichols Show, are doing, please make it a point to go ahead and make a donation to either PayPal, uh, you can do that at the Brian Nichols Show, all one word, the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com, or if it's easier, go to the show notes and click that one-time PayPal donation link, or if you really, really, really want to be one of those super listeners, head over to the Patreon, become a subscriber. That is, again, how we keep this type of of content that you have come to know and love going. So, let's get started. Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I am joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey, what's up, folks? It's Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome, yes, to another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show. If you are a first-time listener to The Brian Nichols Show, well, first and foremost, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I am your humble host, Brian Nichols. We do this type of show once a week, usually coming out here on Friday mornings, and this week is no exception. And I am joined by easily one of my favorite guests, and that is Congressman Justin Amash. Now, Justin Amash really needs no introduction. He has been all over the headlines as of late with him being the first sitting member of Congress as a Republican to openly question whether or not President Donald Trump indeed committed obstruction of justice and should be considered uh, for impeachment. So I don't want to spoil too much of the interview, but we we have a lot of fun. We, we talk about, yes, Congressman Amash's uh, stance on Donald Trump's potential obstruction of justice, kind of discuss what happened to the GOP in terms of leaving this free market kind of you know constitutional approach that they seem to have back in 2010, more towards this populist and nationalist approach here in 2019. Uh, we also discuss uh, Congressman Amash's recent stance uh, to help end the surveillance state, talking about reining in the Patriot Act as well as FISA and particularly Section 702 of FISA that just happened here in the past week. And then we, of course, have to address the elephant in the room, or, or should I say porcupine in the room. Would Congressman Amash consider running for president as a Republican and primary President Trump? Or would he consider maybe running as a libertarian? I, I, I know the answer, but you have to listen to find out. So with that, on to the show. Congressman Justin Amash here on The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, listen, sir, I know we've been working on this interview for quite a bit. And I know back in the middle of May, we originally had it set up that you were going to be on my show. And then uh, something happened where maybe you sent out a few tweets. The president got mad. Uh, and then we had to reschedule because you were a little busy. 
Um, so how about this? Let's do a quick intro for the folks in my show who maybe don't know who you are. Um, but explain who you are as, as a congressman here representing the third district in Michigan. Um, but also maybe we can, you know, start out discussing, uh, those, uh, those tweets that start off a, a really rise in, in stardom from your perspective, uh, but also really showing that you're holding the feet to the fire to, uh, regardless of who's in power, party be damned. So with that, Congressman Amash, the, uh, the floor is yours. All right. Well, thanks again for having me on. Um, for those who don't know, I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I represent the third district and have represented that district in Congress for uh, more than eight years now. So I'm in my fifth term and I've been consistently an independent minded congressman from the day I got here. Um, I've, I've always been independent minded since I was a kid, uh, but uh, it really obviously shows in my votes. Um, there was maybe other, uh, only one other member of Congress who, uh, had a record as independent as mine on the Republican side, and that was Walter Jones, my good friend, um, who passed away, uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I'm a big believer that you need to come here and, uh, uphold your oath of the Constitution and, uh, try to advance, uh, principles of, of liberty and, um, and I've done that. And my district, when they vote for me, they know they're voting for someone who's going to go and follow his principles and not go there just to go with the flow or, um, you know, pay attention to all the polls on a particular issue. I've got to do what's right according to, to the Constitution and the rule of law and uh, protecting the liberty of everyone in my district. So that's what I do. I'm a, a, a libertarian. Um, uh, I've always described myself that way, libertarian, uh, constitutional conservative. Some people might uh, call me a classical liberal. That might be actually uh, a closer description uh, to what I am, which is, for those who don't know, very different from a, a modern progressive <laughs> liberal. Um, so I, I think those are uh, ways to describe me. Some, some people think of me as um, moderate. Others think of me as extremely conservative. So it depends on, it depends on how you're looking at it. Uh, I'm pretty moderate in my demeanor. I think we don't do enough to work together. Um, but I'm also a person who believes people should come to Washington and stick to their principles. If you ran, um, on a very progressive platform and you said that's what you're going to do, then you should come here and do that. And uh, if you ran like I did on a very um, libertarian platform, then that's that's what you should come here and fight for. And it should play out in the House of Representatives through a deliberative process. And we should all be able to go to the House floor and make our case. And then we have a democratic system where we take votes and the majority wins. And that's how it should work. And if you didn't win this time, well, you can win next time. And you've got to try to persuade people to your position. Um, I prefer people who come here with strong principles rather than a bunch of people who come here with um, no principles. Or if their principles are, um, well, I'll just do whatever the leadership on my side tells me. Uh, so I, I, I respect those on either side of the aisle who come here and, and stick to their guns and stand by what they believe in. And you are also willing to go and debate those ideas on the House floor and and accept the outcome uh, regardless of what it is. 
So let's talk about one of these uh, instances where you've really stuck to your guns and you've gotten a ton of pressure. Um, surprisingly, by you know some respects, those people on your side of the aisle being those in the GOP. And that was your your tweets back in May where you said after reading the Mueller report, um, you, you started to say, well, maybe there's a little bit here that we need to look into more uh, in terms of obstruction of justice. And I've heard some folks even in the Libertarian Party or just the Libertarian camp who said, well, how can a president be committing obstruction of justice? when there was no underlying crime that they committed in the first place. So I guess maybe if you could maybe answer those questions to people who they just don't get it. They're like, how can somebody be charged for a crime they didn't commit um, by the obstruction of justice for something, again, they didn't actually do. Um, so I guess if you could kind of lay out what's yeah. your thought process to this and maybe help clarify things for people who are asking that question. Yeah. So on, on this question, um, the law doesn't require an underlying crime uh, for there to be the crime of obstruction of justice. They are separate crimes. Um, the reason you have the crime of obstruction of justice is to prevent someone from uh, hampering the prosecutorial process so that they might not be able to be charged with the other crime, uh, the, the so-called underlying crime. Um, if you had a system where you couldn't charge someone with obstruction of justice if there were no underlying crime, then um, it wouldn't even make sense. They would um, only be charged with obstruction of justice if they were um, unable to uh, completely obstruct justice. So it's not even it's not even logical to have a system like that. So you want to have something to protect the integrity of the um, prosecutorial system, and that's why you have this crime because you don't want people interfering with. Uh, the the lawful um, investigation of of uh, potential criminal activity. So they are separate things. Obstruction of justice uh, has never required an underlying crime in the law. And uh, if you told a prosecutor that obstruction of justice requires an underlying crime, they'd laugh at you because that's not how the law works for other people. And it would be wrong to have a system where the president has one set of rules and everyone else has another set of rules. Why should the president get a special advantage because he's the president um, where he doesn't face obstruction of justice when every day Americans uh, can be charged with obstruction of justice for doing exactly the same thing? So then I guess the, the, the greater <laughs> libertarian question comes out, right? Um, saying, well, what if the law, let's say, isn't just? So I guess, you know, is the law, the fact that you can be charged with obstruction of justice, a, a good and, and moral law um, from a libertarian perspective? And now you being in Congress, do, do you kind of have an issue in grappling that that kind of principled approach to, you know, is a law moral just because it's a law? Or, you know, are we going to hold everybody to the same standard despite the fact that the law maybe is questionable in its morality? Yeah, well, first of all, the executive branch has to uphold the law regardless of whether it agrees with the law. So, uh there's that first and foremost. Um, and members of Congress uh, have to change laws if they don't like what the law is. That's how our system works. We we don't just get to decide we don't like certain laws. Um, I, I do think that the executive branch has some prerogative when they think a law is unconstitutional. Um, I don't think the administration's making that argument here with respect to obstruction of justice. I don't think anyone's argued that obstruction of justice laws are unconstitutional. Um, if I were, uh, in charge and could, and could write the law myself, uh, would I, 
uh, maybe change some of the penalties for obstruction of justice so that um, it is not uh, criminalized as severely. I might do that. Um, but I do think that there is a place for things like obstruction of justice in law because we, we don't want a system where people can, um, can try to evade the law by hampering investigations and, uh, and making it impossible for crimes to be prosecuted. We want an orderly system. Um, just because we don't like underlying crimes doesn't mean that we should allow people to just evade them. Uh, by, uh, you know, hampering or interfering with an investigation. Makes sense. So I guess let's let, want to give you a, an open platform to maybe correct some of the misconceptions that are being levied against you by, by those in the more, we'll say, MAGA camp of the GOP. Um, what is the message that you want to get to those folks who maybe are looking at your stance against President Trump right now and the call for, you know, looking into the obstruction of justice? What's the message that you want to give to them? Well, I don't know uh, what will be precisely persuasive to a lot of them, because I think there are a lot of them who have made up their minds about things um, based on uh, a loyalty to the president. And um, what I would say is the, um, the, the president is uh, a person who does good things and does bad things. And... Um, when I look at the president's policies, sometimes I agree with him and sometimes I don't. When, uh, when I look at the Mueller report, I read the report and I analyze it based on what I have in front of me. There are people who have said, well, um, they think the Pfizer process was bad. And uh, I say, uh, maybe it was bad. I mean, I'm the one who's been fighting against Pfizer more than anyone else <laughs> right. in Congress. Uh, I've been wanting to eliminate FISA for a long time. Uh, I don't support the FISA court. Um, I just had an amendment this week uh, that maybe we'll talk about to try to rein in FISA. And, uh, and I've been pushing against FISA and the Patriot Act and all of these uh, surveillance authorities for a long time. So there are a lot of uh, supporters of the president who say, well, um, part of the investigation was uh, conducted with uh, a bad FISA. In other words, um, they allege at least that there was uh, not enough evidence to obtain the warrant, and yet the warrant was obtained, and so therefore that taints the whole investigation. What I would point out is if they've studied the investigation, they'd find that actually that would not taint the whole investigation, and nor would it end the obstruction of justice charges. The obstruction of justice charges uh, are a separate thing altogether. Someone um, could have part of the investigation where the government did something problematic, uh, for example, obtained a warrant improperly, and they can still obstruct justice and be charged with that crime. And, and in my opinion, that's what happened here, where regardless of what happened in part of the investigation, and as I said, even if it were true that the FISA warrant was obtained improperly, it would not undermine the investigation overall. It would just, uh, it would just hurt part of the investigation, uh, a small part, relatively speaking. And um, you'd still have the overall investigation, and you had a president who tried to undermine the entire investigation by obstructing justice. So um, I have to look at the entire picture, not just part of it, and I can't let the president have a pass um, any more than I would let 
Barack Obama have a pass or any other president have a pass. I don't think it's right for a president to um, to evade the law this way and to be above the law, to think that he should get a special uh, treatment under the law compared to any other citizen. Um, if nothing else, libertarians should believe in equality under the law. And um, right now, we have a lot of people calling for inequality under the law. They want the president to get special treatment under the law because he's the president. And everyone else, we have to follow the law. We can't obstruct justice the way the president did. We can't do all these other things. Um, uh, so I would say everyone's got to be treated the same. And, um, and that's how I'm treating the president. It's sad because I think if you were to look back just, you know, a short three, four years ago when you were talking about the tail end of the, the President Obama presidency, um, the same people who are now fiercely defending President Trump would be the, the first in line to, to scream impeachment over Barack Obama. So I think there definitely is some cognitive, cognitive dissonance in terms of just the, the fact that we've gotten so tribal in our politics nowadays. Um, which actually leads to the next point I want to bring up. And that was, uh, you being quote unquote, the loneliest man, uh, in Congress in Washington. Um, and that was back an article from CNN back in March, which ironically was before, uh, you actually took a stand as the first Republican to start questioning the results of the Mueller report and obstruction of justice. And, you know, obviously you came into Congress with the, the Tea Party wave in 2010 and people were looking at you along with the, uh, incoming group like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, Mike Lee, as really these Tea Party warriors. And, and, you know, you started the, the House Freedom Caucus and here you are just a short nine years later. And it, you know, the House Freedom Caucus, you, you've mentioned in the past week or so that you've resigned from there. Um, so I guess what's kind of happened over the past decade or so since you joined Congress that has caused you to essentially become, quote unquote, the loneliest Republican, the loneliest man in Congress? Well, it's been a gradual, um, uh, move in that direction. I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as lonely. Um, I've got lots of friends here. And in fact, um, the House Freedom Caucus are, uh, many of my friends. So I have good close relationships with, uh, with most of them. Um, and of course, Thomas Massey's a great friend, great friend here. So I don't feel lonely at all. But, uh, what I would say has happened is, um, a lot of um, nationalism and populism within the Republican Party has um, sprung to the surface. Uh, when I started out, a lot of conservatives were very focused on limited government and um, free markets and uh, protecting people's rights. It was about um, really, I guess, classical liberal ideas, um, uh, constitutional conservatism, um, the kind of things that, you know, the founders talked about, uh, many of the founders and, and many uh, famed uh, conservative and libertarian scholars. So, like, it was, it was very much aligned with sort of traditional conservative um, philosophy. And in the past decade, gradually, we've seen people move more toward nationalism and populism and actually bigger government. Um, I think of a lot of the um, Trump movement, for example, as being a big government movement. It's a movement toward um, using the power of the state in a different way. Uh, a lot of the things that are talked about are really about increasing the state's power. Um, even the way the president declares emergencies 
for things that he thinks um, Congress is not handling properly. It, that's an increase in the power of the state. That's the, the president saying, I know better than the American people through the representatives. I'm going to assume more control. I'm going to grow government in different ways. Spending is skyrocketing and people are okay with it. Um, so I think that gradually you've seen a lot of the sort of big government movement within the Republican Party spring up, and it's very much a nationalist populist movement. And it is now um, a dominant force, at least on the political side. I, I still think it's uh, the minority of the Republican Party, but it is large enough uh, of a block that it is um, maybe like a plurality by itself. It's, it's dominating a lot of the other blocks. It, um, it, it seems to come out of nowhere, too. It's like it out of 2015. I mean, I know it, the the Rand Paul moment, if you will, where it was the, the libertarian moment. Rand Paul was was leading in the polls and he was going to be this, you know, this first real face of libertarianism, you know, taking over the, the party mantle and, and actually being a presidential candidate with the libertarian ideology. And then Donald Trump happened. And like you said, the, the populism, the the nationalism, it it basically just completely pushed away all the free market principles that, you know, I myself really was excited about back in the early 2010s. And, and it took over this, this entire movement with this, again, nationalist populist mentality. Um, and you mentioned you, you think it's kind of in that plurality now of, of the GOP. Do, do you see the GOP being saved? Do you see us kind of going back maybe after Donald Trump towards this free market approach, this classically liberal approach to politics? Well, it's certainly possible, but... Um, I, what I expect is probably the GOP would, will revert back to more of a, uh, neoconservative stance, um, more of an establishment neoconservative, uh, approach, maybe represented more by people like, um, Marco Rubio and, and some of these others, um, where it's, uh, it's big government in a different way. So like you've got the, um, you know, you've got the big government nationalist populist thing going on right now with President Trump. And I think you might move back toward a big government, um, militaristic, um, surveillance state sort of thing under, um, you know, under a Marco Rubio or someone like that. Um, uh, not that the president, frankly, has reduced uh, our, our um, involvement overseas or, uh, or limited the surveillance state. Those are as strong as ever. Um, under under President Trump, but uh, they're they've been de-emphasized in many ways versus what um, a lot of the neoconservatives mm -hmm. would do. So, um, so I'm not sure. I think it, it moves back more in that direction. I, I think that, um, like I said, there are more people within the party who are not nationalists or populists, and more people in the party who are not neoconservatives. Um, I don't think those are. Um, the majority of the party, but those tend to be blocks that are maybe more organized than some of the other blocks. And so when they get, um, when they get rolling, like you have with Trump right now on the national populist stuff, um, they, they have a lot of momentum and it's hard for the other parts of the party to overcome them. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you, you never know, like over a long period of time, thinking things can change. And I just don't see it. 
I don't see it changing dramatically in the near future, uh, other than maybe reverting a little bit back more toward the neoconservative side. So speaking of those neoconservatives, um, let's kind of circle back to uh, FISA and then the Patriot Act. So you've been one of the leading voices trying to really curtail the surveillance state. And, you know, I, I think that's easily one of the top issues that I've had. Now, you know, you know, the whole stand with Rand, that was kind of one of the, the entire purposes of stand with Rand was standing up against the surveillance state, standing against, you know, the, the, the war power state. So talk, if you would, uh, about the work you've been doing in trying to repeal, uh, the, the FISA 702, but also your, at, uh, your, your focus on trying to, uh, dismantle the, the Patriot Act. Yeah. So, uh, we've been working on that for years. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm all for repealing the Patriot Act, repealing, FISA 702. Usually when we are working on legislation, um, uh, because we have to um, uh, make incremental changes, we have to move people in the right direction, uh, we can't offer things as dramatic as repeal Patriot Act or repeal 702. Um, I'm all for doing that, but uh, you're not going to get enough people to move in that direction. So what we try to do is um, strongly limit those things. Uh, so I've offered amendments in the past to Section 215 of the Patriot Act and uh, very recently to 702 to really limit what the government can do to try to put the um, sections of law back in line with how the Fourth Amendment um, is uh, supposed to protect us. And, um, and I, I think most of the reforms are not perfect. They're not the kind of things that are, are ideal from my perspective, but they would dramatically protect people's rights compared to what we have now. So, uh, for example, my amendment um, recently, uh, this was this week, would limit 702 collection. So the way I think, uh, for those who are not very familiar with um, surveillance laws, FISA 702 um, involves at least two Fourth Amendment violations. Um, two pretty clear ones. So on the front end, they are collecting a whole bunch of data on Americans, um, communications, full communications, emails, etc. On the back end, they are then searching those communications without a warrant. So they're on the front end, they're collecting them without a warrant. On the back end, they're searching them without a warrant. Last year, when there was a FISA 702 reauthorization, what we tried to do was limit the uh, back-end searching of the communication. So we said, okay, you've collected them without a warrant, but we're not going to let you search them without a warrant. So if you want to search for information on an American in your database of information that you've collected, you can't search that information without obtaining a warrant for that person's information. When we did that, um, we got pushed back, and they fought against us, and uh, ultimately the uh, people who want the surveillance state prevailed, and President Trump himself opposed my amendment and um, signed FISA 702 reauthorization into law um, to expand the surveillance state. So the, the president himself has voted to expand the surveillance state, and right now, if he wanted to, he could say he's not going to use these authorities. He can take, he can take executive action right now to say, I think these authorities are unconstitutional and I'm not going to use them. But he hasn't said that because he's fully supportive of the surveillance state, despite what, despite his de-emphasizing it publicly or his claims of um, FISA abuse all the time. He can't stand FISA. FISA abuse is going on everywhere. 
Um, he right now could say, I'm not going to use these uh, these unconstitutional surveillance authorities, but he doesn't do that because that's not what he really believes. He actually does support them. Um, so last year, that's what happened. Uh, we tried to stop the back-end searching of Americans' communications without a warrant. The president opposed us. He issued a veto threat against my amendment, um, and then he signed the bill into law to allow the surveillance state to expand. This year, with this amendment this week, we tried to stop the front-end collection of Americans' information without a warrant. So um, we're trying to say, hey, um, if you're not going to require a warrant on the back end to search these this information, then we're going to require you to um, limit your collection on the front end so that you're not collecting Americans' information without a warrant. And uh, we brought this to the floor, and... Uh, on the Republican side, we did okay. About one out of three Republicans voted for it. Now, that's not great. I'd love to have more Republicans. But Republicans have not been uh, fantastic on this issue since 9-11. So it's, it's not been a great issue for Republicans uh, in Congress. Um, so I was happy to get one out of three Republicans. Where I was disappointed was on the Democratic side. Democrats have typically said they're opposed to the surveillance state. They voted with us in the past on these issues um, to protect people's rights. And I can usually expect about 75, 80% of the Democrats to be with us on an issue like this. Unfortunately, um, this week, uh, more than half of the Democrats voted against my amendment, which shows how much politics comes into play. I think what's happening is... Uh, there's all this talk by the president about FISA abuse, and the Democrats now they want to look strong on FISA, like they support FISA. Right. Because the president's complaining about FISA, and now the Democrats look like they want to, they want to look like they're supporting FISA. Um, which is unfortunate, because politics shouldn't come into play in this thing. It's, it's about principles, it's about protecting the rights of all Americans, and whatever your feelings about the president, um, we need to fight to protect the rights of Americans so that their communications aren't being searched without a warrant. And what I said to Democrats on the floor was, uh, you complain about um, this president abusing power and you want to keep the executive branch in check and you want to keep this president specifically in check. And yet, um, if you don't support this amendment, you're handing him more power. You're saying, go ahead. You're allowed to search um, and collect the communications of all sorts of Americans. We don't know the exact number, um, but it's a large number of Americans without a warrant, uh, and and that's totally unacceptable. All right. So, final question, because we are unfortunately getting towards the end of the interview, and that is being a libertarian show. I have to ask the libertarian question. Slash. I think a lot of people are asking this question: Is Justin Amash twenty twenty? Will it happen? And if it does, would it happen as a libertarian, or would you consider primarying President Trump? Well, that depends if you'll support me or not. Oh, a hundred percent. I think I think every libertarian would raise their hands in support of of President <laughs> Justin Amash. So, so um, uh, look, I've I've said that um, I don't want to rule anything out. Uh, I, that's not how I live my life. So I'm I'm not speaking specifically about this. When I've been asked over the years, uh, would you run for governor? Would you run for U.S. Senate? I always say I wouldn't rule it out. Um, the only thing I'd rule out is uh, state attorney general. I'm not interested in that at all. <laughs> uh, I've been I've been asked about that one. I'm, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that one. 
Um, so I don't want to rule that kind of stuff out. My um, my goal is to uh, do what I can to defend the Constitution in the best way I can. And if that means running for something else, then that's something I would I would do. So um, I keep those options on the table. I think about where I can be most effective. And um, I, I do have uh, a position of influence. I, I have uh, more of a national profile. And I, I want to use that um, to, to help set things back on course for our country. So to, to help um, restore our faith in the Constitution and our system of government and protect people's rights um, from an abusive government. So I want to do those things, and I'll think about the best way to do that. And um, I've, I've been very grateful, very honored to represent my district. Um, it's, it's really one of the greatest honors of my life, and I wake up every morning um, so thankful to the people of my district for uh, giving me the chance to represent them in Congress. So it's something that I hold dear, and um, and enjoy doing, and uh, I will keep all things on the table, but I, I really do uh, like the work that I'm doing, and, and I, I feel like I'm making a difference. In, in the words of Jim Carrey, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> That's all we got to hear. Well, listen, Congressman Amash, I, I really appreciate your time today, and especially being so busy in Congress. Um, so with that, I want to See, where can folks go ahead and find you over on social media if they want to stay more up to date with all the happenings and uh, all the tweet storms? And I'm you know, obviously giving you a little leadway here uh, where they can find you over on Twitter where you definitely uh, relay a lot of your thoughts and your, your voting and really explain things in detail. Yeah, so the best place to go to hear from me uh, these days is my Twitter handle, at Justin Amash. Um, you know, I, I try to keep people uh, apprised of what's going on here in Congress and, um, and you know, just my thoughts generally about uh, important things in the news. So go to at Justin Amash and, and check it out. And um, thanks again for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. For sure. Well, listen, Congressman Amash, uh, anything we can do in the future to help you continue fighting for liberty, please let me know. Please let my network, We Are Libertarians, know. Um, you know, we, we're all in for, for anything we can do to help advance liberty. So uh, thank you for all you're doing over in Congress. And uh, we really do, again, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brian. Appreciate Abs- it. Absolutely. Well, listen, folks, if you enjoyed today's episode, please take a second and swing over uh, to Congressman Amash's Twitter. Again, it's at Justin Amash, and I will include that link in the show notes. Uh, but also, find me over on social media at B. Nichols Liberty, both on Twitter and on Facebook. Also, you can go ahead and uh, subscribe to us over on iTunes. Please leave a rate and review. That's how we move up the rankings. And as always, folks, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to join us here on The Brian Nichols Show. So, signing off for Congressman Justin Amash. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.